You are tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Shoman. Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and I'm very, very happy to be with you this afternoon to uh, discuss Salvation is from the Jews, to introduce my new radio series on Radio Maria, and to uh, introduce my topic of this series, which is, as the title indicates, Salvation is the Jews. Now, First of all, before I introduce myself, let me say a word or two about the title. It sounds relatively controversial, Salvationist from the Jews, and it might even sound offensive to some even Catholic ears. But in my own defense, let me say that those words, Salvationist from the Jews, are words taken directly from the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They appear in John chapter 4, verse 22, when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her salvation is from the Jews. And the purpose of this program is, to a large extent, to discuss what he might have meant and in what sense is that true that salvation is from the Jews. What's the mysterious role of Judaism in salvation history? How does it tie into the Catholic Church? Why, in fact, was Jesus and all of the apostles Jewish? Just what is the connection between Judaism as the promise of the Messiah and the fulfillment of that promise through the Catholic Church. So let me introduce myself. My name is Rick Shelvin. I am what I consider to be a Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church. Many people would call that a Jewish convert to Catholicism. Uh, my first half of my life, I was very Jewish. I was quite secular. Uh, lost my faith, my Jewish faith, uh, around the time that I went to university and ended up as an atheistic Harvard school professor before I had one or two religious experiences which drove me into the heart of the Catholic Church very gratefully. And a little bit later on this program, I will give my witness testimony and tell what those experiences were and how I found my way to the Catholic Church. Um, perhaps, in fact, what I will do is I will simply begin with that now. Um, let me, before I begin the witness testimony, though, just say that these days I am as Catholic as I possibly can be. I have become a professor of theology, and I teach theology at both Ave Maria University in Naples, Florida, and at Holy Apostles uh, College and Seminary in um, Connecticut. So let me just begin with my witness testimony and go on from there in, of the role of Judaism in salvation history. Uh, also, before I launch into my witness testimony, let me say I do have a website, which is called salvationistfromthejews.com. If any listener is interested, you are more than welcome to get in touch with me through that website. There's an email link, or you can simply email me at roy at salvationistfromthejews, all one word, dot com. And I have also written a number of books which are published by Ignatius Press, one of them titled, Suspiciously, Salvation is from the Jews. Uh, the other titled Honey from the Rock, 16 Jews Find the Sweetness of Christ. So with that, by way of introduction, let me begin with my witness testimony. Uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I was born and raised Jewish. My parents are both German-Jewish Holocaust refugees who fled Hitler's Germany. Uh, my father got out at the very beginning, just after Hitler came to power. There was a short period when Jews were actually being invited to leave as long as they left everything behind, and he fled at that time. My mother's family was less fortunate, 
and they fled to France, but that soon fell under Nazi domination. And uh, my mother found herself in occupied France, and in fact was arrested by the Gestapo and put on a train to a concentration camp, but escaped and eventually made her way to the United States, where my parents met and married. Um, their whole world was Jewish. They were both quite uh, serious about being Jewish, um, and in those days there was less mixing between the Jewish community and the, the non-Jewish community. The area that my parents settled in was predominantly Jewish. Uh, all their friends were Jewish. Their entire world was Jewish, as was mine. All of my school friends. Um, I went to Jewish religious education from the beginning of schooling until university. My whole world was Jewish, and, and my identity most certainly was very seriously Jewish. And I had a quite pious nature, and I saw my relationship to God as being entirely through Judaism, and that, in fact, it was Judaism and the Jewish people who had the inside line, so to speak, God, and knowing him and to worshiping him and to doing his will. So it was in that year that I went on to university. I went on to MIT uh, after uh, high school. I lost my faith at MIT. Uh, I left there pretty much atheist or agnostic. I went on to Harvard Business School. did well enough there, so I was invited to be a professor, and I found myself as a newly minted professor of marketing at Harvard Business School at the ripe old age of 29, and that's really where my witness testimony, per se, begins, because all my life, from when I was a small child, I felt there has to be some real meaning and purpose to life. I somehow knew deep inside what real meaning and purpose to life, and I thought that someday when I was old, I would have to know that real meaning and purpose to life. As a child, I thought that would come from knowing God and serving God and entering into a personal relationship with God which I thought would happen when I was older. I actually thought it would happen at my bar mitzvah. The bar mitzvah is more or less the um, Jewish uh, ceremony that's sort of analogous to Christian confirmation, Catholic confirmation. When the child is about 13 years old, he undergoes a ceremony in synagogue where he enters into religious adulthood. And I honestly thought as a child that at my bar mitzvah, the veil would drop and I would come into a personal relationship with God. When that didn't happen, it was actually one of the saddest days of my childhood. But then, as I grew older pretty soon, I thought that the meaning and purpose of life, when I got a driver's license, or when I left home, or when I began university, or when I began my career, and so forth. But at this point that I'm describing, that is when I was teaching at Harvard Business School, I had already been more successful in my secular career than I ever expected to be being a professor at Harvard, but life still had no meaning or purpose. As I said, I had fallen into a kind of soft atheism. Life has no meaning or purpose. We're just an accident produced by random chemistry and evolution. We live for 60, 70, or 80 years, and then we die, and there's no purpose or meaning or pattern to life, and there's, there's certainly no uh, continuation of the self after death and so forth. And so everything was kind of a, a cruel joke. And in this existential uh, meaninglessness, I actually fell into the deepest uh, depression or despair of my life. And um, it was in that mood that I was walking early one morning in nature, just lost in my thoughts, having long since given up any hope in believing in God, when I received the most spectacular grace of my life from one moment to the next, 
As I was walking along, the veil between earth and heaven dropped, and I found myself in the presence of God, very knowingly in the presence of God, seeing my life and experiencing my life as though I had died, and I was looking back over my life in the presence of God after death, and I saw and felt how I would feel about everything after I died. I knew what I would be happiest about, happiest about having done, and I knew what I would regret having done. I knew that my two greatest regrets, or saw that my two greatest regrets when I died, would be, number one, all of the time and energy I had wasted worrying about not being loved when every moment of my existence I was held in an ocean of love greater than I ever imagined could exist, coming from this all-knowing, all-loving God. And the other great regret would be every hour I had wasted doing nothing of value in the eyes of heaven. I saw that it was all true. The thing we did had the potential for a moral content of for good or for evil, that everything we did was recorded and weighed in the balance and really mattered for all eternity, that every moment of our life held the potential for a moral action for good, even if it's just throwing up a quick prayer, that if we took advantage of that opportunity, we would be very literally rewarded for that for all eternity. And if we let that moment slip by without doing anything of value, it would be very really a lost opportunity for all eternity. I saw that uh, how wrong I had been being so worried about everything that was happening to me and sort of living my life in the rearview mirror saying to myself, if only that hadn't happened to me, then I would be happy today. Or if only that hadn't happened to me, then I would be happy today when nothing could be further from the truth, that everything that had ever happened to me had been the most perfect thing that could have been arranged coming from the hand of an all-knowing, all-loving God, not only including those things that had caused the most suffering at the time, that had thought of as the greatest disasters at the time, but especially those things that had caused the most suffering at the time. I saw that there was never any reason to be worried or anxious about anything, that absolutely everything that came to meet us was the most perfect thing that could be arranged coming from the hands of a God who knew us and loved us far more than we could possibly know or love ourselves. And I saw, in some sense, the, the most astounding single aspect of this experience was just to come into the knowledge that God knew me and was watching over me and caring about me every moment since my conception, as though... I were the only person in the whole universe. So I were the only person he had ever created. And he had not only been controlling everything that happened to me at every moment, but he had been caring about how I felt at every moment, and in some sense made happy by everything that made me happy and saddened by everything that made me sad. And it was coming into this deep awareness of the incredibly intimate love and care and concern and protection coming from not only the most powerful being in the universe, but that's an understatement, because in fact, existence itself, being itself, is a creation of God, much less everything, or much more, everything that exists. So it totally turned my world upside down, and of course I knew that the meaning and purpose of my life was to worship and serve my Lord and Master and God, who was revealing himself to me. But I, what I didn't know was what religion to follow and what his name was. I couldn't think of this religion as Judaism and as him as the God of the Old Testament. Now, of course, I know 
that it was. But in all honesty, and I'll talk about this later in the in the series, if you uh, read the Old Testament, the picture of God which emerges from the Old Testament is of a God far more distant and judgmental and severe than the God who has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ and through the New Testament. And in fact, the truth of the relationship between God and man is that the relationship between God and man itself was different before the Incarnation, was different before the coming of Jesus. In, in fact, there are even uh, explicit statements of that in the, in the New Testament, in the Book of Acts. Um, and there's a citation of a prophecy from Joel. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's something like, of the days are coming when people won't have to run to one person or another to say, tell me about God, but God will make himself known to the lowliest maidservant and manservant. And that is, of course, our situation today, but it wasn't the situation in the Old Testament. And when one reads the Old Testament, one sees explicitly that God revealed himself through the prophets and through the priests, but did not reveal himself to the hoi polloi, to the ordinary person. And their connection to God could only be through priests and prophets. In fact, my picture of God from the Old Testament is the picture that's painted in the book before God tells Moses to go up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He tells him on the base of the mountain to prevent any of the people from even touching the base of the mountain while I'm on top, because should they even touch the base of the mountain, they have to be immediately killed because of the sacrilege. And that is the sense that I had of the Jewish God um, growing up and at this point in time. So, getting back to my witness testimony, I, I could not think of this God who was revealing himself to me as the Jewish God and the religion of Judaism. So I prayed on the spot. I prayed to know who he was so I would know what religion to follow. And I remember praying quite literally, let me know your name so I know what religion to follow to worship and serve you properly. I don't mind if you're Buddha and I have to become Buddhist. I don't mind if you're Apollo and I have to become a Roman pagan. I don't mind if you're Krishna and I have to become Hindu as long as you're not Christ and I have to become Christian. I literally prayed that. So he didn't reveal his name to me, since I obviously wasn't ready to hear it. But um, but I went back home after that experience, uh, happy for the first time since childhood. I knew that there was never any reason to be anxious about anything. I knew that I was loved far more than I could possibly ever hope or imagine. I knew that we lived forever. I knew that every moment had the uh, potential for an infinite depth of meaning. I knew that um, every day, every hour, every minute, I could do something which would essentially be adding to my bank account in heaven after I died, not only for a few years or a few hundred years, but um, for all eternity. In other words, for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, and then some. And uh, all I wanted to ask to know who this Lord and God and Master was and what religion to follow. So every night before going to sleep, I would say a short prayer I had made up to know his name, so I would know what religion to follow. And a year after that initial experience, I went to sleep. Um, I thought I was woken by hand on my shoulder. I now know that physically I had remained asleep, and if there had been a camera in my bedroom, it would have shown me still asleep in bed but I can only describe it as I experienced it and as my memory represents it to me, which is that I had, was woken up 
and led to a room and left alone with the most beautiful young woman I could ever imagine. And I knew without being told that it was the Blessed Virgin Mary. And when I found myself in her presence, just to be in her presence, just to feel the purity and the intensity of the love which flowed from her, was to be lifted up into an ecstasy greater than I ever imagined could exist. And when I found myself in her presence, all I wanted to do was throw myself down on my knees and somehow honor her appropriately. Um, as a matter of fact, the first thought that crossed my mind was, I wish I at least knew the Hail Mary, but I didn't. Now, the first thing she said to me when I found myself in her presence was she offered to answer any questions that I might have for her. Let me make a little digression here and say that as overwhelmingly beautiful as she was to look at, even more soul-stirring, that's a very, very weak expression for it, even more deeply affecting, even more making my soul burst with ecstasy, was the beauty of the sound of her voice. Her voice went straight through me, carrying such a purity and intensity of love that it just lifted my soul to heaven. And it was as though her voice was the essence of music without it being singing. It somehow held in itself everything that makes music transcendent and beautiful. And uh, when she offered to answer any questions that I might have for her, the first uh, question I kind of wanted to ask her was, would you teach me the Hail Mary? Since, as I said, I, I just want to somehow honor her appropriately. But I was too proud to admit that I didn't know the Hail Mary. So as a kind of indirect way of getting her to teach it to me, I asked her what her favorite prayer to her was. Now, her initial reply was a little bit coy. It was, I love all prayers to me. But I was a bit pushy, and I said, but you must love some prayers to you more than others. And she relented, and she recited a prayer. But it was in Portuguese, and I didn't know any Portuguese, so the best I could do was make the effort to remember it phonetically. And the next morning when I woke up, I wrote down the first few syllables phonetically so that I could ask a, a Portuguese person. And later, this Catholic person, I asked her to recite all of the Marian prayers in Portuguese so I could identify this prayer. And to the best of my ability, I identified it as the whole Mary conceived without sin. Pray for us every day. Anyway, I asked her about three or four more questions, which she graciously answered. Um, and then she spoke to me for a while, and then the audience was over, and I went back to sleep. And the next morning when I woke up, I knew it had been Christ in that initial experience on the beach. And I was hopelessly in love with the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I knew that I wanted nothing other than to be as fully and completely a Christian as I possibly could. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the difference between us uh, was. There wasn't much I could do other than local phone book and find a church to go to, which as a Protestant church. But I knew who the Blessed Virgin Mary was. And uh, that pretty directly um, led me into the Catholic Church. Uh, later, I think I will come back, later in a, probably in a subsequent show, I will come back uh, to a little bit more of my witness testimony and talk a little bit more about the Blessed Virgin Mary, a little bit more about the questions and answers, and a little bit more about the process that directed me to the Catholic Church in between that experience with Mary 
and finally uh, being baptized into the Catholic Church. I did very gratefully enter the Catholic Church through the normal means, uh, the baptism and confirmation and, and first Eucharist, about 20 years ago now. And um, it is uh, one of my reasons for doing this is it is such a joy to speak to Catholics from the perspective of an outsider um, who is perhaps able to appreciate what one has in the Catholic Church with the perspective of an outsider, which might mean more dramatically than it might be the case for somebody who grows up within the Catholic Church. My mental model of this is it's as though, uh, well, we're all Americans. Most of us are Americans. We live in relatively civilized uh, environment. Uh, you know, we live in a house with electric lights and clean running water and central heat and so forth. But if you imagine uh, an African tribesman in the bush of Africa who grows up in without any of these amenities, without any of these luxuries, and has to walk a mile or two for fresh water and has to rub two sticks together to make a fire for light and so forth, if he were to come to America and see what we have, oh, for light, you just put your button on the wall, and for clean water, you just turn a knob, he would spend the first six months probably with his jaw hanging down to his chest in grateful amazement at these incredible riches and luxuries, which we take for granted because we've always had them. Now, I can't help feeling that, to some extent, the situation that some cradle Catholics find themselves in, they, whether they um, are faithful to the sacraments or not, whether they're faithful to the moral teaching of the Church or not, they know it's there. They know the contents of the Penny Catechism. They know we live forever. They know about heaven and hell. They know about the meaning of life. I should say you. You know about divine providence. You know about the saints. You know about miracles and so forth. These are all things I would have given my right arm for growing up. My my constant complaint to my religion teachers growing up was, why did God used to perform miracles in the days of the Old Testament and then stop? And they never really had a satisfactory answer. Most of you, as, as cradle Catholics, are aware that God did not stop performing miracles, that he does so on an extremely regular basis, either through the intercession of the saints, sometimes through the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and so forth, that God's interaction in the world is so much more immediate and so much more continual than um, I, I think anybody outside of the Catholic Church has any idea of. You have all of the answers. You have all of the answers of what God expects from man, how God expects man to behave, what the rewards for behaving the right way are. And we have in the Catholic Church a means through the sacrament of a, a life in union, in, in knowing union with God and the communion of saints that is available only through the Catholic sacrament and only to Catholics in a state of grace that the rest of the world is dying for. So it's a great privilege and pleasure to be able to speak to you about this, and I hope to be able to reflect that more in the course of this series, and I also hope to have other grateful Jewish entrants into the Catholic Church to join me on the show to give their witness testimony, and also to express their infinite gratitude at the greatest gift that God ever gave to mankind, which is actually the doctrine and sacraments of the Catholic Church. So with that as way of introduction, both to myself and to the series, I think we will um, go for a minute or two break of music, and on the second half of the show, after 
the music, which I expect to begin in, in 10 or 15 seconds or so, we will, um, I will continue to talk about the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic. Thank you very much for joining me, and uh, I hope to hear you on the other side of the break. God gives me strength of high heaven, sun and moon shining flame in my heart, flashing of lightning, wind in its swiftness, deeps of the ocean, firmness of earth. This day God sends me. Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Showman. Uh, hello, welcome back. But I hear that there are uh, a couple of callers, so I'd be very happy to uh, speak to the callers now. Hello, Dr. Schumann. Hi. Who is it's this Father Robert Young. Oh, hi. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for calling in. I'm, thanks for inviting me to do the show. 
Oh, you're so welcome, and, and our apologies for the technical problems. It's uh, not too unusual for the beginning of a new program, but we're so grateful for your participation in our network and the wonderful program you've already begun. So thank you so much, and, and we're just uh, so delighted to have you with us and know that you're going you're gonna to give us wonderful, wonderful program. So thank you again for sharing your life and and your ministry with us here at Radio Maria. Well, thank you, and, and thank you for your prayers, because if anything works, we know that's why it works. That's right. <laughs> Sometimes it, it seems that that's the only way it works. But yeah. in any case, one, one of the things I just wanted to, uh, and I'm sure other listeners might be interested in hearing, of course, is, is kind of, you know, we don't we don't hear too many people who ha- actually have some kind of, you know, mystical experience of kind of directly from God, and, and not that we want to pry into that, but but I, I think uh, everybody would, would love to hear more about what, you know, what, what that was like from from your own subjective point of view and, and how it uh, it touched you so deeply. So we're, we're grateful for what you are sharing and look forward to much more. Okay, sure. And I'll try to uh, spend a couple of minutes kind of addressing that, that question. Um, well, it's very hard. It's very hard to deal with life afterwards. I'll say that. Um, when I was, when I had that initial experience, uh, when as I described the veil drops and I found myself in heaven, um, I definitely was, uh, I don't know how to put it, but I was definitely happier than, than any natural state of happiness. Um, uh, and as I said, I, uh, you know, the veil dropped. I really was very, very aware of the presence of God and signed to heaven in other ways, too. But what surprised me wasn't that I was seeing into heaven. The only thing that surprised me is I could ever have been blind to it. What I was seeing was so much realer and so much more substantial than the physical world around me that I just could not understand how I could have ever been oblivious to it, and I never imagined that I could ever again become oblivious to it. I was still walking during this experience, so I still saw the trees and the path and so forth, but they were they were like a gossamer screen. They were so insubstantial compared to the reality that I was seeing behind it. It's a, I sometimes describe it the following way, which is if one has ever gone to a stage production or a ballet sometimes, you'll be in the audience and the curtain will be in front of you and the house lights will be on the curtain and it'll be completely opaque and um, the house lights will go down and, and you know the curtain is still there and then they will turn on the stage lights behind the curtain. And all of a sudden, the curtain disappears, and you see the dancers or the actors on the stage behind the curtain because it's, in fact, only a thin piece of fabric, and all of the light is behind the curtain and is coming through. So it just disappears. And that's what it's like. I, I saw the physical world as this, like, gossamer veil, this insubstantial veil that was simply kind of had been temporarily blocking the view of the reality which lay behind it. I never dreamt that I could ever lose that vision again and, and be kind of trapped in this relatively um, artificial, I don't want to overstate it, but in, in this very limited world compared to the world of uh, eternity. Similarly, when I had that, that nighttime experience, that dream experience of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, the next morning when I woke up, my first thought was, oh, 
great, I can't wait until I go back to sleep again tonight and see her again. Uh, it never occurred to me that I, it might never happen again. And then the next morning when I woke up and it hadn't happened again, I said to myself, well, this is bound to be at least once a week, right? And then when it wasn't, oh, it's going to be at least once a month, right? And by the time I realized it would never happen again, the experience had faded enough so that I could live with it. But if somebody had told me the morning after I woke up, that's it, you'll never see her again for another 60 years until you die, I don't know how I could have gone on and, and faced such a kind of colorless, drab life for 60 years until I could find myself in her presence again. And that first experience was, was like that, too, that that the um, intensity and reality and, and consolation uh, and, and, and depth of joy, I, I don't even have words for it, of that experience were such that nothing else, in, everything else in life just completely paled in comparison. Uh, anyway, it's a joy and a privilege, actually, to be able to talk about these things. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know if we have another uh, another caller. Yes, hello? Hello? Hi, Roy, this is Bree. Oh, Bree, I think I know who this is. <laughs> Mr. Maximilian. <laughs> yeah, long time ago, discernment, yeah. Um, I, uh, it's, it's great to hear you on radio. I'm glad that you are working now in this ministry, um, especially since we do share uh, a common patron saint or one of our patron saints, um, St. Maximilian Kolbeck. So uh, using media as a way of being able to witness is right down our alley. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm very <laughs> grateful to that connection, as you know. Um, I did have a question regarding um, your first experience, um, and I never really actually uh, asked you this, but did you think that your experience is what uh, Radisson also kind of experienced in an illumination of conscience? And um, do you think that that is connected in any way to divine mercy? Uh, good, good questions. Um, uh, in case uh, probably many of our listeners won't be aware of Alphonse Radisbon, I will at some uh, point in this series talk about other other Jews who have received extraordinary graces that brought them into the church, and in some sense, first and foremost on, among them is Alphonse Radisbone, who lived in the uh, second half, or actually middle of the 19th century, and was uh, also an agnostic, anti-Catholic Jew when he was rather unwillingly the recipient of an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary in a church in Rome. It's actually to this day the only church-approved apparition of Mary in Rome and immediately um, was converted, and as soon as he got up from the experience, asked to be baptized, and a week later was living with the Jesuits and proceeded to become a priest and a Jesuit, and then leave the Jesuits in order to found his own religious community. Anyway, I will be giving his witness testimony, but his conversion came about through a very direct experience with the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I would say that in, there is something in common in the... Uh, sense that the veil between earth and heaven dropped, and he saw the truths of the faith all at once illumined for him. And I did, too, actually. I saw, I don't want to say virtually all of the truths of the faith, but many, many truths of the faith were just revealed to me in that experience. But one notable difference between Alphonse Radisbon and me is that I did not have an illumination of conscience. Um, and I think that was, um, in itself, kind of a grace, because I was seriously enough mired in sin that had I seen 
the horrible state I was in, um, I'm not sure I would have processed the experience appropriately. I think it might have been more than I could bear. And frankly, between you and me and whatever other, I hope, you know, tens of thousands of listeners are listening, um, there were a lot of aspects of my life that I had to give up or change dramatically because they involved sinful behavior. And if that had been presented to me all at once, I may not have been that enthusiastic about giving them up. I, I, it might have been difficult to uh, bite that bullet all at once. And so the Lord worked more gradually with me and kind of layer by layer showed me what I would have to give up, but didn't present it to me all at once. So that was quite a um, dramatic difference. Alphonse Radisbone saw it all at once and was able to uh, forswear all of his um, you know, sinfulness and sinful behavior on the spot, and I'm not sure that I had the moral, moral strength or courage or virtue in order to do that. So, okay. um, are you there still? I am. <laughs> okay. Well, there you have your answer. Well, thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know if there are any other uh, callers. Um, if not, I will go back to talking about the um, continuation of Judaism in the Catholic Church as a kind of continuation of my witness testimony. And I will just kind of uh, morph my witness testimony into a little discussion of the continuation or the role of Judaism in salvation history by saying the following, which is that when I did very, very gratefully enter the Catholic Church, uh, when I would come across cradle Catholics who knew that I was a, a Jewish convert, they would sometimes sort of throw their arms open wide and say, welcome to our church. And I was always a bit taken aback because I couldn't help feeling that if the Catholic faith is true, it should be me opening my arms and saying to them, welcome to my church, because the Catholic Church is really nothing but the continuation of Judaism after the coming of the Jewish Messiah. In a very real way, the Catholic Church is post-Messianic Judaism. And Judaism is the pre-Messianic Catholic Church, or pre-Messianic Catholicism. There is one relationship between God and man. All of creation, all of human existence is, is obviously it's tied to God. It is created by God, is created by God for an intimacy with God that we can't imagine for all eternity. And this system for the relationship between God and man for all eternity has been constant from the fall of man in the Garden of Eden until the second coming. And that relationship, that system that God developed for the relationship between God and man from the Garden of Eden to the second coming had two phases. It had a preparatory phase, phase one, which is Judaism, which is designed to prepare for the incarnation of God as man. And then it had a fulfilled stage, the stage two, which is the Catholic Church, which was the mechanism for the relationship between God and man in between our redemption, the incarnation, suffering, and death of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, until the second coming. And then after that, after the second coming, after the end of this world as we know it, we will have the new Jerusalem, and we will have life in eternity, in intimacy with God, when this world has passed away. Excuse me, Roy. So we, yeah? we have one more caller. We have Louise on the line. Okay. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I just have a real quick question. With sure. the special encounter that you had with the Virgin Mary, 
was that help you through the early times to every time you may it's getting close to God that that sustained you that when you thought um you know how do I get closer to God did that help you oh gosh uh it it did help me um but the truth is I never thought how do I get closer to God I had a kind of my whole relationship to God was kind of upside down because of the way he brought me into the church because basically what happened was from the time of that initial experience I had a um, unusual intimacy with God which I still had at the time of the experience of the Blessed Virgin Mary kind of a, a very natural depth of prayer I would say which faded over time so that now by now my prayer life my spiritual life is, I think, a kind of normal Catholic spiritual life. But for those first few years, there was a kind of turbocharger that had kicked in in order to, to bring me to where I had to be brought. Um, there are many ways in which my relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary brought me closer to God, but that has more to do with her intercession and more to do with her love. And actually, also, I will say that as a Jew... I found Jesus somewhat threatening, as reflected in that initial um, experience I had of God, where I said, as long as you're not Christ, I have to become Christian. I know it sounds ridiculous to think of Jesus as a threatening figure, but I did think of him as a threatening figure. The Blessed Virgin Mary, on the other hand, was so gentle and purely loving and, and feminine and motherly that I couldn't possibly feel threatened by her. So it was much easier for me to go through my day, so to speak, in a, a union of love through the Virgin Mary to God than it would have been directly to Jesus. So I hope that kind of answers your question. I, it, it does. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and thank you for calling and thank you for listening. Um, so uh, let me go back to the... Um, continuation of Judaism in the Catholic Church, and perhaps I'll, uh, at this point, I'll probably spend the, the remaining uh, eight or ten minutes just kind of wrapping that up. So anyway, the uh, as I said, there was one economy of salvation that God designed for all of mankind from the fall in the Garden of Eden until the Second Coming. That economy of salvation had two phases, phase one, which is Judaism, and phase two, which was the Catholic Church. So let me talk about phase two, Phase one, rather, that is the role of Judaism and salvation in between God's creation of man and the Incarnation, and that will probably take us to the end of this uh, hour. So when God uh, created man initially, when God created Adam in the Garden of Eden, he created him to live in a state of uninterrupted intimacy and bliss with God from his creation for all eternity, right? No, no old age, no death, no sickness not even any work, just a life of intimacy with God and bliss without end. Um, when man chose to sin, when Adam chose to sin, that initial exalted relationship between God and man was shattered and man fell. But at that very moment, God knew that at some point in the future, he would not only restore man to that initial exalted state, but would actually raise him to an infinitely higher state, through the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, as a man at a future point in time. 
if the second person in the Most Holy Trinity was going to incarnate as a man at a future point in time, it would have to be among a particular people, in a particular place in the world, at a particular point in time, even in the womb of a particular virgin, and of course that people would have to be prepared. They would have to be separated out from all of the other people on the face of the earth. They would have to be given a means to remain separate for hundreds, in fact thousands of years, while they were given a tremendous amount of divine revelation. Divine revelation, first of all, to know about the one true uncreated creator God, to know about the creation of man, to know about the fall of man, to know about the seriousness of sin, the need for redemption, the future coming of a Redeemer, to know enough about that future Redeemer to be able to identify him when he came, to be given enough, they would have to be given enough foundation in theology to make sense of what was happening, and to be able to spread that new religion, the good news, so to speak, the news of the Redeemer, to the four corners of the earth after he came, this would take, obviously, centuries and centuries of being raised up, centuries and centuries of revelation, centuries and centuries of being gradually purified from their demon worship, from their paganism, from their sinful behavior, until the Incarnation could take place without in itself being a sacrilege. In fact, until a virgin could be brought forth through generation after generation after generation of successfully, successively, you know, more and more moral people, so that that virgin would be so pure and so sinless that she could give her flesh and blood to be the flesh and blood of the God-man, the flesh and blood of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, as man. And that's what the Jewish people were. One can look at many of the um, aspects of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, the rules that God gave them to keep them separate, um, as perhaps a mechanism to keep them separate for almost 2,000 years while they were being prepared for this most important role, the most important single role ever given to any ethnic people to literally bring salvation to all mankind through the incarnation of the second person, the Most Holy Trinity, as a man, as our Messiah and Lord Jesus Christ, and as their long-promised Messiah, Jesus, also. Now, this is probably a good place to break for next week's show, um, at which point I will begin to talk about why the Jewish people were chosen and what it means that they, uh, to a large extent, failed to recognize Jesus when he came, and and so forth. But for now, that's all the time that I have for for today. I thank you very much for tuning in. I hope this has been interesting to you. It's certainly been a joy to me to be able to um, express this this view of um, what it means that salvation is from the Jews. So thank you very much, and goodbye for now. <laughs>